I invite you to turn quickly with me to Matthew 24. My urgency to get us to the text is uh, met with the challenge I think that I have to tackle the task before me. This is a part two to where we began on winning the world when it's at its worst. The world at its worst is in the last days. We're in the last days, but things are going to get worse and worse and where we'll find ourselves in, is in the study of the seven-year tribulation, which is defined throughout Scripture and um, talked about here in the teachings of Christ and the Olivet Discourse. Remember, he's teaching his disciples sort of on the eve of him being incarcerated. He's a day and a half away from that. Let me read our text that'll just give us a window into... Uh, the end. Verse 15 of Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter, in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's stop there. This is... uh, a text that is in times teaching. It's uh, in the host of texts, and you know it's part of a broader span of scripture that speaks of the end times, or what you could call eschatology. Eschaton being the end. It's in times teaching, teaching right from Christ, and what he's calling the people that he's talking to to do is what he's predicting will be accomplished in the end. And that is that true believers persevere to the end. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how much pressure is laid on a true believer, a genuinely converted person, they might be broken down, but they will not ultimately break. They might be stopped or stalled or paused or even regressing, but ultimately they will persevere to the end. They keep going. They don't quit. When the world is at its apex or zenith 
of being at its worst, true believers persevere through that. And that is their testimony to the world. And the world watches people and wonders, will they keep going when life gets crushing? And unbelievers are one to Christ through that kind of testimony. Last week we talked from Matthew 24, sort of introducing end times teaching to say when life is at its worst, when the world is at its worst, this opens up windows for evangelism, for gospel outreach. When things hit on a catastrophic level, either personally or globally, it's our opportunity to talk about Jesus to people. It opens people up. They want to know answers. And where this teaching goes is to the seven-year tribulation. That's where verse 15 takes it, which means things are ramped up. And what is on display here is not evangelism so much through words, but evangelism through faithfulness and perseverance. The no quit in somebody, no quit on Christ, no quit on him, no quit in terms of what he's doing in your life, no quit in terms of your testimony is what wins people to Christ. And that's the applicational point. That's my burden to share how that plays out even in your life and mine. It's a future vision of the world, verses 15 and following. It's a judgment on those who are, as it's been said, left behind. Those who are still here after Jesus comes back and raptures his church away, which he will do. Those who remain are under judgments. In particular, seven years of tribulation. It's what Daniel talks about in Revelation, um, sort of Old Testament meeting New Testament in parallel, speak to this time period, this great day. And it's, in a broad sense, referenced throughout the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament with minor prophets, the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. And understood literally... This day or this season of years is gruesome, and it's the worst of it that the world has seen and will ever see. Look at verse 21 again quickly. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Cataclysmic. It's as bad as it gets. Noah's flood, bad, really bad, total wipeout of the world. This is a second ramped up round of that. Debates over the timing of when the judgment comes or to whom it befalls are wide in the church. Just to touch on that, there are positions that would just relegate all of this prediction to something that's already happened in the past. Like it's, it's ancient history. The book of Revelation is a history book. It's not a futurist book. I'm a futurist. I view apocalyptic Bible truth as something that's in the future. The preterist position, which is Latin for past, the past position, the person who sees this as already happening, says this already happened to the Jews, it happened to the Israelites, it happened at AD 70 in that first century where Christ was on the earth, and then after he left, there was judgment given to Jerusalem for rejecting Christ, where Rome sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, and so all of this was fulfilled then, and I don't think that's so. 
Positions vary in terms of what the church would see in the tribulation. Would we be raptured out? That's a pre-tribulational position. Or are we raptured midway through and taken out then? Or is it a post-tribulation where there really is no rapture coming of Christ? It's all in one arrival. But I think that ignores the precise nature of Scripture. Scripture is precise. It's clear. And there's a message to be given from the clarity of Scripture that we should hope in as the church. But I think the bigger issue in terms of interpreting the Bible right is answering this one key question. What does God's word do with the nation Israel? That's where everything turns. Everything rises and falls on the fact that you either take the promises that were given to ethnic Israel as literal and as what is going to be fulfilled, or you do not. That's, that's where everything turns in terms of how you interpret the Bible. Ethnic, national Israel. Are these promises that were given all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, are they going to be literally fulfilled? Will Jesus literally return to the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah? Will he really split it in two when he returns? Is there a physical demonstration at a point in time where he's here and ruling and reigning in the geographical nation of Israel in the future? Is there going to be a literal thousand-year reign after the seven-year tribulation? Is that literally going to take place, or is that all figurative? A preterist or a covenantalist would say that these things are just fulfilled in the church. And so it was, it was one way in the Old Testament, and then it morphed to the New Testament, and the church sort of takes over after the Jews rejected Christ. There's a lot of believers who believe that. But I believe just as the judgments were applied literally to Israel, that also the promises and the hope for Israel is remaining as well. I don't see it as figurative, a figurative seven years. I see a literal seven years. Sort of people want to build some kind of national reform theology that ignores the fact that things are trending worse and worse when they really are. Scripture has promises that are to Israel where Israel will play a distinct role in the future during the tribulation, during the millennial kingdom, and in the new heavens and the new earth. Why do I say that? Well, if you just take a quick glance at one verse from the book of Romans, Romans 11, it talks about the fact that Israel was the beginning. It was the original plan. And then the church, after Israel's rejection, is grafted into that plan. It's, it's inserted into the plan that's going and, keep, and, and keeps going. And it's not the other way around. Romans eleven twenty four. for if you were cut, this is Paul speaking to the church, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, that's the church coming in as Gentiles from the outside, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, this is God's plan for Israel, how much more will these, the natural branches, the Jews, the Israelites, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It was their olive tree from the beginning. This is God's plan for his chosen people, a chosen race, a chosen seed, a chosen land, a particular people, 12 tribes of Israel. This is all part of God's plan. 
And it ultimately eventuates with the Abrahamic covenant where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there's this massive revival of the whole world. But one vision doesn't cancel out the other. The vision of Israel being saved does not cancel. It coalesces with the nations being saved. And I'll show you that from scripture. You say, well, if this is about Israel and chapter 24 is about Israelites, believers in the tribulation, what does this matter to us? Let's just check out and not even think about it. Well, I think that's missing the point entirely because every generation has worried about the end and has wondered if it's now the end and we need to frame it appropriately according to God's precise plan and act accordingly. Every generation makes the issue of the end matter. In AD 70, the church did. They thought, well, Jerusalem is upended, so it must be the end times. They were, the disciples were begging for Jesus to clue them in about the end times. If you remember having grandparents who were part of the World War II era, when Adolf Hitler was um, in power in Germany, and he was viewed as the Antichrist, Satan-inspired probably was Satan inspired, and he would be a, a version of Antichrist. He killed off millions of Jews at the Holocaust, six million, maybe, maybe higher, eight or nine um, Polish people, Russians. The estimate total could be in the millions upon millions of millions that he was killing off. In the 80s, you have, um, you have Mikhail Gorbachev, who was viewed potentially as the Antichrist. Is he the one that has his hand on the switch to nuke the world and burn it up with fire, which seemed apocalyptic, people's minds. The last sermon I gave alluded to different eras and and that being synchronized with wars. But because we're not in war, people go into more of a post-millennial mindset where they say, you know, I don't know if it's a literal seven years or even a literal thousand years as depicted in the book of um, Revelation. But Um, it doesn't really matter. Things are just getting better and better and we'll just kind of win people and take over. I don't think that's what scripture teaches. That's not what we're seeing in verse 15. The days of the tribulation are worse than any day that's ever been before or will be after. So the wars and rumors of war of verse six in this chapter are building to something worse a zenith test. So why are the Jews the ones who are tested and not the church? Well, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we wait for the Son of God from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, wrath is eternal wrath, but I want to say also there is, if you believe in the rapture, the catching away, Jesus will return. We're called to anticipate that and be spared from wrath that will go on those who've rejected Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are raptured. That word rapturo means to be caught up together, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The church was upset because during persecution, people were dying, their friends were dying. But Paul said, look, I don't want you to 
feel like you, you won't see them again. You will see them again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're going to return with Jesus. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning those that have already died, our loved ones who died in early church persecution, they're going to come back in the army of God with Jesus And it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You have hope. You'll be reunited. You'll see Jesus and you'll see your friends and family who've gone before you who are in the Lord face to face again. That's the hope. You're not going into wrath judgment. You're going into hope as a believer. We're spared from wrath. Revelation 3.10 says this, and this is the church, to the church of Philadelphia, but it's representative of the whole church. It says, Revelation 3.10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Do you hear that? You're kept from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What is this trial? What is this hour of trial, that's what Revelation chapter 6 through 14 speaks of, which is defining the seven-year tribulation. That's, these are the judgments that are to come. There's a seal judgment that's described in Revelation, meaning scrolls are broken open. The, 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 the sticky part that holds the, the scroll together is a seal. It's broken, and there's a judgment on the world. Then there are trumpet judgments where trumpet blasts are sound, and the angel of God comes over and pronounces dark judgment on the world. And then three and a half years in, this is during the tribulation, three and a half years in, this is the abomination of the desolation where the Antichrist will um, desecrate the temple. And that will provoke the Lord to bring the bold judgments onto the world. This is what the church is spared from. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have not, have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Eternal wrath, yes, but I think it, it assumes we're saved from this wrath. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Wrath is for the disobedient, those who reject, not for believers. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When he comes back, we're swept up with him. The church is not meant for wrath. So then who is left during the tribulation? Revelation chapter 7 defines this as the 144,000 Jews. Why 144,000? Well, it's it's, uh, representative of 12,000 Jews representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 times 12, math students, 144,000. And so is that language precise? I take it as precise. I take it as literal, as literal as there were 12 tribes. And they're listed here. Verse four, and I heard the number of the sealed. This is the 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gab, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, which is formerly the tribe of Dan, from Simeon, from the tribe of Levi, Issachar, from Zebulun, from Joseph, which, which is another name for Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, and then 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. These are the ones who are converted Jews. This is the continuity of the plan of God from the beginning. God chose a royal nation. Now, these promises that were given to Israel are also partially applied to the church. First Peter, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's holy nation. That's true. But then also in the future, you see the plan playing out literally for this remnant in the end that is converting to Jesus under the pressure. Now, does that cancel out God's worldwide plan for the nations? No, the next verse in Revelation 7, verse 9. And this I looked, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a glorious picture. The 144,000 representing the continuity of the, the 12 tribes of Israel and believers as the remnant from Israel, literal Israel, all in coalescence with the Abrahamic covenant from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people, people will believe. From, from like as numerous as, as the stars or the grains of sand, you have all these believers coming from all over the world. It's an amazing vision of victory. It's the victory of Jesus saying, go to the nations and win the nations. And they're one. So you have this picture of Israel and the church, a remnant that during the seven-year tribulation becomes the evangelistic force to both lead Jews and Gentiles who are there during the tribulation to Christ. Isn't it amazing? You have... These judgments that we talked about, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, and you have revival going on in the world. And it's revival based on these Jews who believe and then are persevering. They're called conquerors. They're called overcomers in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That conquering perseverance is the testimony that Christ is real, that the Savior is Messiah, Jesus. They're sealed, they're conquerors. This vision is carried out in Zechariah 12.10 from the Old Testament. It says, I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Yes, there's weeping, there's mourning, there's grief because they had rejected Christ all this time up till now and now they're seeing Jesus. They're looking upon him whom they've pierced and they believe. They are qualified to evangelize, genuinely saved. And we see this proved out in Revelation 14, 1 through 7. Then I looked, this is John, the 
um, apocalyptic writer, the Apostle John, he says, Behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It was these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These are they who've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from the God and for God and the lamb. Does that cancel out the worldwide um, propagation of the gospel? No. Verse six, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. These plans coalesce. It's really one plan with full continuity. Yes, there was rejection. The Jews, by and large, rejected their Messiah, and the church was born. And the, the gospel was going out to the world. That's the program we're in right now. That's the, that's the play that the coach has called for us to run. Okay, that's what we're doing. But we're awaiting a Savior to come and take us up and take us home in the rapture. And then judgment's coming, and there will be this resurgence of believing Jews as revival and as, as evangelism takes place massively on a world scale during the seven years. And this is the testimony of hard sledding, hard perseverance through tremendous judgments. Well, all of this is prologue to our text. So now we're turning our attention back to Matthew 24, verse 15. The remnant is seeing the worst, and these are the persevering Jews. So how can believers apply their perseverance to, how can you apply their perseverance to your life? That's the question. How can this be meaningful to you today? If you're not going to be there, then how can we make this matter? And I think that's what Jesus is doing. Remember, he's teaching his disciples, and these disciples whom he teaches are not going to be the ones at the tribulation. They're already in heaven. So he's teaching them to honor and look forward to, uh, look forward toward that day when these believing Jews will persevere in the tribulation. And that's an example that they could follow in the wake of and we should likewise do. Number one, how believers persevere when the world is at its worst? First of all, you run from evil. You run from evil. I don't mean march. I don't mean walk. You don't saunter. You run from it. Run from evil. The sentiment in Christianity today is to reform the culture, sort of get involved in it, reach it. The worse it gets, the more you should run. The faster you should run from the world. Run from evil. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, run from this evil influence. When you see the abomination desolation, now Jesus is speaking to disciples in real time. Those who by and large are Jews outside of Jerusalem on the on 
Mount of Olivet, and he's there, and he's speaking to them. But Jesus, as he looks at them, is calling us and the hearers to see beyond here and now to the future, to the abomination of desolation, whenever that would be. That which is predicted by Daniel that was coming where the Antichrist smack dab right in the middle of the tribulation, right at 3.5, three and a half years, that's when an Antichrist, the Antichrist, the representative, uh, representative of Satan will stand and desecrate the temple. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of this, and that's what Jesus said to reference. He said, spoken of by the prophet of Daniel. Standing in that holy place. Let the reader understand. See this through the eyes of Daniel. See this in light of the big ending. That's what he's saying. Look at this as if you're looking into the future. Daniel 9, 24 says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and about your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. What is this talking about? Well, if you'll remember from Daniel, Gabriel, the angel is actually speaking this to Daniel. And Daniel is a a prophet of the Old Testament. And he's getting a, a, a window himself into the why of catastrophic events in the future. Why did God do this? Verse 24 is saying it's to put an end to sin. It's to flush it all out. Why did God allow sin in the first place? We don't have an answer to that question. It's called the problem of evil. Um, He allowed it ultimately for his own glory because he eradicates it in the end. That's as far as we can really go. He's not responsible for it. He's not the author of it, and yet he allowed it. It happened, and then he's letting it purge itself out all the way to the end. Similar to the flood, this is the second round of that. And this is a summation. It's to bring everlasting righteousness in his holy place. In particular, the target aim here is, is the people of God, the Israelites. And verse 25 speaks of historic antichrist like Nebuchadnezzar that brought Israel into exile and then rebuilt it. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore, going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. This is probably Artaxerxes or could be Cyrus, probably Nebuchadnezzar. These are people who were unspiritual or even anti-God. So there will be seven weeks and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats. So Jerusalem was destroyed and the book of Lamentations is where Jeremiah is crying out to God in, in the historic moment of the burning city. The book of Daniel speaks of, you know, the Israelites being swept away in captivity. And then this speaks also of when the temple would be rebuilt. That's where this prophecy is coming. And then verse 26, this fast forwards to the coming of Christ. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, this is Jesus, shall be cut off. Means he would come and he would ultimately die on the cross. This is the first advent of Christ. And shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is what Jesus is referring to. And he shall make a strong covenant with 
many for one week, and that one week is talking about the seven-year tribulation. One week, those seven days are representing seven years. And for a half of the week, that's at the middle point, 3.5, three and a half years, the middle of the week, the half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. The Antichrist will wipe out all religion, all anything that speaks to God or Christ. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And that's when the judgments will come. See, abomination of desolations, 3.5 years, the Antichrist, he's the most high who changes the times and the law. Verse Daniel 7.25, they shall be given to him in his hand for times and a half a time. Revelation 11.2 speaks of 42 months, which is three and a half years. 11.2, it says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Don't be worried about measuring the temple or anything religious therein. It's over at that point. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years. Revelation 13.5, and the beast was given. A mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So the seven-year tribulation, it's built out through the book of Revelation. I think I misspoke. It's Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. That's describing the seven-year tribulation of the seals, the trumpets, and the bold judgments. Ramping devastation. But what happens to the believing Jews? Look in chapter 24. Look, look ahead to verse 34. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Grace thing I think you can hear from a pulpit is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And be saved by grace. But not far behind that is this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You got to be born again to be saved. But once you're saved, grow, grow. And what that looks like is taking steps and persevering. And when you want to give up, don't give up. And when you get discouraged and fall down, get back up. Find a friend, confess a sin, get in community, get back up on the horse. Go back to the Bible. Join a Bible study. I mean, just keep going. For your own soul's sake, but also for the testimony of Christ. Blow it. Sin. It's going to happen. Own it. Repent of it and move forward. This generation will not pass away. They're proving themselves believers as the remnant of God, as a finale in redemption history. Say, why do we need to know about this? Well, there's a lot of us that get wrapped up in end times thinking in a wrong way. We stop looking for the coming of the Lord. I mean, think of all the different things that happened historically. Just a few, to name a few. In 167 BC, Seleucid King Antiochus conquered Jerusalem as was his signature. And he sacrificed swine, which is a total like desecration of the law. He sacrificed swine in the temple. 
And he tried to, and he set up an altar to Zeus there. Think about that. Acts, or AD 40, so that was 160 years before Christ, but then AD 40, Emperor Caligula, insane, believing he was God, had designs to put his own image up in the temple, and then we know AD 70, 30 years later, General Titus came in, leading Roman troops to starve out the city, and then to upend it and turn it into rubble. During these times, people, the New Testament church was saying, is it the end? Did we misunderstand? Is there no rapture? What's happening? Isn't this antichrist? Isn't it over? My hope is waning. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 10. Let no one, this is Paul to the church, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. He'll be revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. You say, well, is the new, is, is the president the Antichrist? Is this the Antichrist? Is that person the Antichrist? Just hold on. It's got to get really, really bad. And guess what? We're supposed to be raptured before that happens. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And I think that alludes to the tribulation period. That's for later. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Why do we study end times theology? Not because we're necessarily going to be there during the tribulation or we have it all figured out, but we have hope that God is taking care of all these things by precise detail. And we have hope that we're not going to be under wrath in any form whatsoever. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's the opposite of where we are. We love the truth and so we are saved. So we don't have to believe we're coming under the judgment of the Antichrist. What is this? look like? What does persevering look like as a believer? What will it look like for the 144,000? What does it look like for us? It looks like this in a word, separation. Let me add to that, complete and utter separation from worldliness, from the seductive nature of the Antichrist. You run. You run. I was watching a a clip, um, I guess it's a recent one, of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and he was uh, under a con- congressional hearing and under the lights and pressure where parents um, behind him were holding up signs of their children who had either been trafficked or taken or something horrible happened based on the predatory nature of the Internet. And the, the force of the congressional hearing was so strong that it, was, that it became compelling for Mark to turn around and literally apologize for what his product had done. 
That's pretty wild stuff. Um, I don't search for that. I just, people show that stuff to me like, hey, look at this. But, um, but it's, the seductive nature of Satan is powerful and it's more and more descript these days, right? With the predatory nature of the internet. Just be careful. Just be wise. Be wise to the schemes. All of the good that comes from preaching through the internet or, or the word of God or, you know, the ways that we use it um, is great. But just be guarded. We're called to run and separate ourselves from that which can ensnare us. Look at verse 16. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That means head to the hills, run away. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down. Don't go down and take what is in the house. Don't go back for comfortable things. Leave and let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. Your cloak's over there. You got to get away. There's no debate with the devil. Bad company corrupts good morals. You're putting real distance between yourself and anything satanic. It's the call to be holy for God is holy. And you say, well, is separation legalism. There's a strong trend to say anything where you're talking about being separate is legalistic. Well, where there's no clear biblical violation or no clear biblical or Bible verse warrant to separate, then that comes back to it being a personal preference. And I understand that. And there are things that decisions certain people make that other people don't have to make within the body of Christ. That's stronger and weaker brother dynamics. And there's all kinds of things to think through there. But don't let that principle of not being legalistic in any way lessen this warning to be separate from what can ensnare you. 2 Corinthians 6.17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. This is the will of God. First Thessalonians 4 says that we hold ourselves in sanctification and honor. It's the will of God. Christ extends this horrible but desperate picture even to pregnant women. There are no exceptions. You're pregnant, you still need to flee. You still need to get away. Look what he says, verse 19, And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. He's got a sanctified exasperation saying even for pregnant women or even nursing women, you need to get away from this seducer. From the world. You don't want the target that's on the backs of those who are rebelling. You don't want that target. You don't want to be anywhere near that target. You want to distance yourself from God's judgment that's coming. It says, verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on, this, or on a Sabbath. Pray that, I mean, it doesn't matter. If it's winter time, you pray against that, but you're still going to run. If it's on a Sabbath when you feel like you need to be resting, you still need to get up and run. And you need to pray that the conditions are as good as they can be for you to flee. It's a non-negotiable separation. Well, how bad will this be? Look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. It's going to be worse than it ever has been ever in the history of the world. And then verse 22. I mean, obviously the giant, the sleeping giant has been awakened. And how bad is it? And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
I just have a minute to touch on this verse, but it caught my attention. Because it's talking about being elect, and it's talking about God intervening on behalf of the elect. Literally cutting days short to preserve the elect from falling. Falling prey to Satan's schemes, falling prey to, you know, rejecting the faith. But he's saying, no, you're elect, so I'm literally going to cut days short to keep you. It's uh, the word echo lo, lobo thesan, which is an aorist passive. It's used again, kolobo thesante, which is a future passive. It just means that God in his preventative maintenance, in his awesome plan, has has made it so that when the world is at its worst and when these 144,000 people, when these ethnic-believing Jews that represent the 12 tribes of Israel are running and fleeing evil, are heading to the hills, are evangelizing the world and the nations with their witness, God is bringing them along and keeping them. No one will snatch me from my hand, the Lord says. He'll keep every one of them and he's keeping them even to their breaking point. And when they're right at their break, point he goes enough and cuts the day short whatever that means he takes the pressure off before someone would ultimately reject christ and that same saving and keeping is applied to us today why do we persevere why do you keep going because you have the confidence that god will not put more on you than he puts in you to bear it up and and bear through whatever you're going to have to face he's enough His elect will persevere. His elect will make it home. His elect are the believing remnant. Here's a picture of this. I recently heard a devotional from a a dad who works on the slope who happened to be away from his home and family on a shift and he received a late night phone call from his son. Looked at it and he knew his son was away on a retreat a grace christian sports retreat away with a mom as his mom is a sponsor there other kids other teens they're out in the woods and his dad picked the phone up and the first words he heard from his son was this dad i i messed up which is just you know the thud in your own gut as a dad you just wonder what in the world is this going to mean what happened was the son had gone off the trail Um, as I understand it, and got separated in the woods as it's getting darker and darker from the party, from his group, from his friends, from his mother. He'd been calling desperately on his cell phone to try to get through to his mom or friends, and there's no cell service. But then he just, out of desperation, hope against hope, called his dad. And satellite, satellite service took it to the slope, and his dad was on. And what his dad did, very wisely, as he looked down on his phone, the finder phone, he could see his son's icon, and he was trailing away, and he could see his, his wife's icon, son's father, over here. And he said, son, take a breath and stop walking. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around and walk back, and you'll soon join up with your mother. And that's... A picture of the grace of God and his watch care. The son began to turn around and went the other way. And as the two icons began to meet, right as they were going to be in close range where they would see each other, all service dies. (laughs) So the dad is left there up on the slope with no way to contact and no way to get full closure on what happened. But he had a pretty good assurance that things were going to work out just fine. 
You know, when I was asking the dad for permission to share this, I heard the, the, the mom who's the wife in the background going, be sure to tell the pastor that uh, I was going to keep looking till I found my son. <laughs> we would have found him. You know, God cares about us in that way. He sees you right where you are, on the trail, on your path, in your circumstance, in your trial, in your desperation, in your dark hour. And he's right there with you. And if you listen, his watch care is present. Stop. Don't go that way. Turn around. Go this way. Keep going this way. You'll meet up with success and God's will in the path. It might not be easy. It might seem bleak, but there's comfort to be found in the sovereign, kingly, caring, watch care of your soul. It's electing love that's synchronized with the clear direction that you can persevere even in the dark day. God is with us. And in our perseverance, we win the loss. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this text. As we explore the end, Lord, we see this as invigorating for us to grow and learn from and and be who we need to be for you in this fight as we march as soldiers fighting the good fight of faith. In Christ's name we pray.